We turn in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, and in verse 4 we read, Charity suffereth long and is kind. And we looked at those verses last week. Then the verse goes on, Charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly. And our theme this morning is love and pride as opposites. Love and pride as opposites. We proceed with this inspired description of love, that love which should govern all our behavior in and among the church of God and indeed at all times in our daily lives. First of all then, love excludes envy. Love excludes envy. Charity or love envieth not. Now what is envy? What exactly is it? Well, envy is dissatisfaction with the prosperity of others as compared with ourselves and the hostility which arises from that dissatisfaction. So it is dissatisfaction with the prosperity of others as compared with ourselves and the hostility which arises from that dissatisfaction. This envy may relate to possessions and to wealth. It may relate to position and honor and standing amongst men. It may relate to gifts and abilities of mind or body, but it is at the root always the same, a dissatisfaction about something that someone else or some other people have and a hostility arising from that. Ahab could not be satisfied with being king in Israel, nor with all that he had in terms of rights and privileges and possessions as king. He could not bear not to have the vineyard that belonged to Naboth. So much so that though he was a king, he sulked and would not be consoled until he could have the vineyard that belonged to Naboth. Naboth was evidently a godly man and attached to the heritage of his fathers given by God. Naboth had done Ahab no harm at all. But Ahab envied Naboth that vineyard. I read recently a biography of a Greek peasant woman living in the mountains of northern Greece. This woman was very poor and uh, her husband went to America and from time to time came home and gave her things that others in the village did not have. And uh, so this peasant woman, because her husband went to America, 
she had a bit more than others in the mountain village had. And yet this woman was generous to her neighbours and gave of those things to others. And yet, after the Second World War, in Greece this was immediately followed by the civil war between the fascists and the communists. And the communists occupied this village in the mountains. And some of the neighbours of this woman, even those that she had given to of those things which she had, they could not resist testifying to the communists at the show trials in the village against this woman. They testified against her. And ultimately she was put to death by the communists, even though she had done them no harm. And in fact, had been kind to them with those things that she had, because all along they resented the fact that she had what they did not have. And all her generosity did not alter the fact that in their sinful hearts they couldn't abide that she had what they did not. And of course, we needn't go to general biography to find these things. I've mentioned Nabal, uh, Ahab and Nabal's vineyard, but there are many other instances in the scriptures. David, King David, according to the custom of the times, though not approved by God, he had six wives, and yet he still wanted Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You see, envy is not necessarily checked by the worthiness of the one envied. Nor is it necessarily checked by the consideration of what the one envied does not have. Nor is it necessarily checked by the thought of what the one doing the envying does have. So that what the person who is guilty of this envy may have and what the envied person may not have, and the worthiness and character and qualities of the one envied, all of these things can be swept before the tide of envy and covetousness. Because sin is irrational. Sin is irrational. In the scriptures, sin is equated with folly, with foolishness. Sin makes men and women stupid and absurd and ridiculous. And yet proud modern man, he makes a god of his own reason. And yet he's such a fool. It is self-evident that man is as wicked by nature as ever he was. And yet man is full of himself today, of his reason. And yet he's a fool in his behavior because he's a sinner. So sin is irrational and envy is irrational and all kinds of considerations that ought to check the envy of the heart of man, the quality of the other person, what they don't have, what he has, doesn't stop this envy. That's why if you're a discontented person, and you think that if only I had this or that or the other, you imagine you would be content. You would not. 
You would not. It's a lie. It's a myth. Discontent is per perpetual ache. And it may focus on one thing, but when that thing is attained, it will turn to another. Envy is not rational at all. It's not reasonable. But why does love exclude this envy? Why does love have the tendency to push out this envy? Let's look at some reasons. First of all, because love to Christ and contentment in Christ go together. Love to Christ and contentment in Christ go together. The man who loves Christ loves a satisfying Savior. The man who loves Christ loves him because he has right views of him. And if we think rightly of Christ, we will see him as the one who is all that we need. If we think rightly of Christ, we will think of Christ as the one who is all that we need. We will think of him as the one who can take away our guilt and the one who can also satisfy our souls. If we don't think of Christ in those terms, we're not thinking rightly of Christ. If we think of Christ as he really is, we will see all that we need is in him. Deliverance from guilt, the satisfaction of our souls is in him also. He can deliver from objective guilt before God and he can give to us that satisfaction of soul which the world knows not of. He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. So in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. His thoughts of Christ as the one able to strengthen him so that he could do all things. His high view of Christ meant that he, would, that he was content in Christ. The work of grace had reached such a, such a, a, a stage of advance in his soul that he could say, having food and raiment, let us be there with content. He'd learned in all states to be content because he had Christ. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And you will never be content until you have big and great and glorious and loving thoughts of Christ. Without such thoughts of Christ, contentment will always escape you. In 1 Peter chapter 1 
and verse 8. Speaking of Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Surely you say, if I could rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, yes, that would be contentment. And how could these Christians rejoice in such a way? Not because their outward circumstances were calm and tranquil. On the contrary, they were undergoing trial and trouble and they were in heaviness for a season. It was because they could say of Christ that although they hadn't seen him, they loved him. And they believed on one whom they could not see. And because of their thoughts of him, then even though they were under trial and affliction, they could rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We will never have Christian contentment until we have grand and glorious thoughts, magnificent thoughts of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until we think highly of Christ, contentment will never come. And so love to Christ and contentment in Christ go together. But then another reason, love to God will be accompanied by an appreciation of his wisdom in providence. If we love God, we will love all that is true of God. We will love him in his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness and his truth. We will love the wisdom of God. We will adore and admire the wisdom of God. We will see that wisdom displayed in his providence and in his providence toward us. And we will recognize that if this glorious God, this all-wise God, is the one who governs our circumstances, then that adorable wisdom is being uh, manifest in those circumstances and surely then we must be content. Discontentment and envy always entail uh, an idea that we are wiser than God and that we know what is good for us better than God. Whereas if we love God and his, the wisdom of God, the more we adore God in his attributes, including his wisdom, the more we will see and acknowledge and know that his providential dealings with us are right and true and for our good, and we'll be content and we'll envy not. But then another reason, love to God will produce a low view of what we deserve. Love to God will produce a low view of what we deserve. We touched upon this last week in a slightly different connection. But you cannot begin to love God. You cannot become a real Christian without becoming low in your own eyes. If you're high in your own eyes, you'll never become a Christian as long as that is true. A real Christian has become aware that he deserves nothing but the wages of sin, which is death. A real Christian knows that he deserves nothing from God but the pains of hell forever. 
and that anything above that is of the undeserved kindness of God. A Christian knows that. A Christian knows that he deserves nothing good from God. A Christian depends on Christ for salvation because he knows that he deserves nothing good. That's why in the scriptures the people of God are described as the meek, the meek of the earth. In the scriptures, the idea of someone being a believer, of being godly, of being a Christian, of being a saved person, can be equated with their being the meek of the earth. The people of God are the meek. The meek who will inherit the earth. A new heavens and a new earth. So that the scriptures could interchange believer with meek, the meek. Christian with meek. Because true Christians are meek. Then another reason, love to our neighbour will cause us to esteem others higher than ourselves. Love to our neighbour will cause us to esteem others higher than ourselves. In respect of all men, it will cause us to put the best construction possible upon their actions. And so that with respect to others, apart from their evident faults, which we cannot deny, because not even love should make us liars, but apart from their evident faults, we will attribute as high a motive as possible to that which is outwardly good. And so among God's people, we will esteem others better than ourselves by charitably judging what is visible of their lives. What we see of them, when we see them act, if there are, if there's more than one possible reason why they do such a thing, we will work on the basis of the best possible reason unless we have reasons which are constraining to do otherwise, we will attribute the best motive. But with respect to ourselves, we know more, or we should know more, and we will realistically assess not only our outward actions, but those inner recesses of the heart, of the thoughts, of the intents of the heart, and that's why Christians are to esteem others, other believers, better than themselves. They know more about themselves. With respect to others, they can only see what is outward and they must attribute the best motive possible to their actions. With respect to themselves, they know the awful reality of those sinful motives that can often be hidden behind good outward actions. So love to our neighbour will cause us to esteem other Christians better than ourselves. 
Then love to our neighbour will cause us to rejoice in their blessings. The word of God says, Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. When blessings are bestowed upon us, we rejoice. When blessings are bestowed upon our neighbours, we should rejoice also. If we love them as we love ourselves, then blessings bestowed upon them will cause us as much joy as blessings bestowed upon us. So the Apostle says, Romans 12, 15, Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. So this Christian love to God and to man will have this tendency to push out envy. And so the Corinthians should be able to rejoice in one another's gifts rather than trying to compete for preeminence in the church at Corinth. They should gladly acknowledge the gifts of the brethren rather than trying to elbow themselves to the forefront. Secondly, love excludes pride in heart and behavior. Love excludes pride in heart and behavior. Our text goes on, Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly. To vaunt oneself is to boast about oneself, to brag. To be puffed up is to be inflated, blown up. The Apostle uses this term several times in this letter. Chapter 4, verse 18. Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. Chapter 5, verse 2. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. There he's talking about knowledge that isn't applied. If our knowledge of truth isn't applied to heart and life, it will become an occasion of pride. We will be puffed up. And then it says, Charity behaveth, doth not behave itself unseemly. To behave unseemly is to behave unbecomingly, inappropriately. And uh, the idea is of behavior that is inappropriate to a given situation, but which reflects a distorted view of things. And the proud man has a distorted view of his own self-worth. He has a wrong view of himself. And because of that dislocated view of himself, in given situations, he behaves inappropriately to that situation. He behaves unbecomingly because he thinks he is what he isn't. He thinks he's far more than he is. And he acts as if he was what he wasn't. And so his high estimate of himself reveals itself in behavior 
inappropriate to his true position. His behavior diverges from what reality would suggest because he has an unrealistic view of himself. He thinks he's greater and better and more able than he really is. And so that wrong view of himself means that he's behaving as if he's something that he's not. And so his behavior is not seemly, it's not becoming, it's not appropriate. And so the Apostle speaks of pride, inwardly, puffed up, in words, vaunting oneself, in behavior, unseemly. And love and pride repel each other. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, We've said many a time that that sin and its cause, the proud desire to be independent of God, independent of the Word of God. They wouldn't take God at His Word anymore. <coughs> he says it'll harm them to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They'll die. And they say, no, no, we're not going to take God's Word for it anymore. We can know independently of God. We can experience independently of the command of God. We can know, we can do things without needing God. We can do our own thing. And the devil told them, you'll be as God. If only you do it, do it. And you'll be independent of God. You won't need God. You won't have to rely on God. You'll become like God. And that's the very reason why God's telling you not to do it. And so when they proudly rejected the word of the Lord and disbelieved God and struck out in a desire to be independent of God. What happened? Their love to God stopped. And their relationship to each other was marred. They were afraid of God and hid themselves instead of loving God and delighting in God. And then when they were hauled out and called to account, we find Adam blaming Eve, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me. She gave me and I did eat. It's not my fault, it's the woman's fault. It's God's fault. He gave me this woman. The pride meant that love to God and even love to one another was ruined. Because love and pride repel each other. To be proud always involves the denial of God. Always, always. Pride causes men to glory in that which they have been given by God as if they hadn't been given it. What hast thou that thou hast not received? And if thou hast received it, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? That's why men are proud of their abilities, their strength, their intellects, their possessions, their successes, their families, as if God were not the giver of these things. 
We have nothing. We have no natural ability and achieve no success apart from the providence of God. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And yet men glory in anything and everything which they have or achieve as if God had nothing to do with it. So pride makes men deny God as the author of everything they have. And pride makes men deny and contradict God's assessment of them. God says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They say, no, not me. God says in his word that we are not only sinners, but corrupt from our youth, and that our lives are a catalogue of sins. They say, no, I'm not that bad. The word of God says that sin is so abominable to God that he justly condemns sinners to everlasting condemnation and judgment in hell. They say, no, I don't deserve that. So pride contradicts God. Pride, whether it's in what we are, in imagining that we're good and righteous in ourselves, or whether it's in what we have, abilities, possessions, success, which comes from God. It's always a contradiction of God. It's a contradiction of what God has done to us and for us, or it's a contradiction of what God says about us. But it always contradicts God. And it is that same pride which causes sinners to deny that they need what they most need from God, salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that pride which causes men and women who desperately need to be saved from their sins through Christ to say that they don't need that salvation. Well then, the application is simple. First of all, are you proud or are you saved? Are you proud or are you saved? Now, I don't mean that every Christian, or indeed any Christian, will be free from pride this side of heaven. But a real Christian, a real Christian, God has begun a good work in him. And he has begun to love God and man. And he has begun to exclude that pride. A real Christian has been changed by the Holy Spirit. He hasn't been perfectly and completely changed yet, but he has been changed. So that his heart is different. He's no longer the proud sinner that he was, secretly cherishing the delusion that he wasn't so bad after all. He's no longer the man or woman that he was, telling himself that he's not so bad and he doesn't deserve eternal judgment. 
That's all changed. He's learned to depend on Christ to save him, and only Christ. And he's begun to love God, that love to God and man which pushes pride out of the heart and life. Is that true of you? Has there been this revolution in your estimate of yourself so that you've come to God as a poor sinner who justly deserves the wrath of God forever? And have you come to God depending on Christ crucified alone to make you accepted before God? Has that happened to you? Has your heart been changed from that proud thing that it once was so that you're now a sinner depending upon the Savior, willingly depending on Christ to take your guilt away? So are you proud or are you saved? Secondly, if you're a Christian, If we are Christians, we must face head on this truth that love and pride are opposite ends of the seesaw. In a seesaw, for one side to go up, the other must go down. And if we are to love God more, the pride has to go. And you must, if you're a Christian, make it a chief concern of your Christian life to address the pride of the heart, to seek its mortification. We all know what mortification means. It means the putting to death of pride. Pride cannot be accommodated. It cannot be reasoned with. It has to be mortified. Put to death. And if we are to increase in love to God and in that delighting love that we must have towards God's people or that compassionate love to the unworthy, then the pride must be mortified. And so we should make it a chief concern to seek grace, to humble ourselves before God continually that the pride might be more and more mortified and our love and admiration of the greatness and the goodness and the glory of God will increase. Growth in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ entails two inseparable parts. And they are summed up in the words of John the Baptist in John 3 and verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease.